The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. With all the growing interest in NDEs and out-of-body experiences these days, there seems to be comparatively little discussion about a related spiritual encounter, commonly known as sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is a topic seldom discussed in NDE circles, and perhaps that's because of its terror-producing impact and the sense of evil it engenders. All of which makes today's guest, David Hufford, Ph.D., such a unique source on the topic. Dr. Hufford is a sleep paralysis experiencer himself and the author of the book, The Terror That Comes in the Night. Since his own experience in college, he has dedicated much of his career to investigating reports of sleep paralysis from around the world. Dr. Hufford retired in 2007 from his position as university professor and chair of humanities and professor of neural and behavioral science and family and community medicine at Penn State College of Medicine. He's now University Professor Emeritus at Penn State, Senior Fellow in the Brain, Mind, and Healing Division of the Samuel Institute in Alexandria, Virginia, and Adjunct Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Hufford has served regularly on NIH scientific review panels, and he has published and lectured widely on spiritual experience and on spirituality and health. In 2012, Dr. Hufford chaired a panel and presented a paper on natural histories of spirituality and therapeutics at the Third World Congress of Cultural Psychiatry in London. He's currently carrying out a funded study of the relationship of extraordinary spiritual experiences to trauma and recovery. David, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you very much, Lee. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to have you and to talk about a topic that we've not discussed before on, on this yeah. show. I was wondering, David, perhaps we could begin with your description of your own sleep par- paralysis experience. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. But before I do, I think something right at the top we should do is think about the, the, your, from your introduction. <clears throat> we should make some statements about how this is and is not related to near-death experiences, since much of our audience has a special interest, as I do and you do, in near-death experiences. I think it's important to get clear on what we are and are not uh, going to proceed to do about the relationship, okay? Okay. Okay, great. First of all, uh, one thing to make clear, that sleep paralysis experiences, which are fascinating and and uh, rather mysterious kinds of experiences, uh, and, and which are spiritual experiences, although terrible spiritual experiences, as you mentioned, they are not in any sense directly related to near-death experiences. Some people have suggested that some of the mechanisms of sleep paralysis may operate uh, to produce near-death experiences. I think we now have plenty of data, including my uh, some of my data from my current study, showing that that is absolutely not the case. They're, mm-hmm. they're related only in that they are both... Uh, perceptual, spiritual experiences that are compelling uh, and and taken to be firmly real by those who have them. 
so they belong in sort of a, a large related basket, but they're quite different from each other, number one. Number yes. two, there are some interesting links. Uh, sleep paralysis, when it persists, and it's usually re- relatively brief, maybe 30 seconds to a minute, but sometimes it may go on for 15, 20 minutes or longer. And when it's a long uh, sleep paralysis experience, it often culminates in an out-of-body experience. So, bingo, there is an interesting connection. Um, And in fact, when we look at the history of people's efforts to experiment with out-of-body experiences, they often encountered sleep paralysis without knowing what it was. So in the 20s, when people called it astral projection, uh, Uh and they came across these paralysis experiences during the process of inducing astral projection, they call them astral catalepsy, but it's, it's clearly the same thing. So anyway, it is, at, like the near-death experience, a complex and controversial, from a materialist point of view, uh, and intensely spiritual experience, um, although not a religious experience in our culture, and that's a distinction we'll have to say a little bit about also. But I want people to know it has relevance to understanding near-death experiences, but it is not an explanation for them. It's not the same thing. It's not the same people. Okay? Very good. Okay, now you wanted my experience. I'll try to keep it brief. <clears throat> in 1963, when I was a sophomore in college in Waysport, Pennsylvania, Following my last final, uh, it was in December, and I was really tired. Uh, In fact, I had had mononucleosis earlier that semester and had really had to play catch-up on getting my exams done. So I was really sleep-deprived. I went to my little apartment off campus. Uh, I had no roommate. I just rented this room from an elderly gentleman, so it was just in a private home, not a dorm. Uh, And I went to bed expecting to sleep a long time. Uh, In fact, I remember taping the blinds down to the windowsill, trying to make sure that light in the morning was not going to wake me up. Uh, But I was disappointed in how long I was going to sleep. I woke up. I wasn't sure how much later, but it seemed like maybe just a few hours later, uh, hearing my door open. I thought maybe someone was coming in to ask if I wanted to go to dinner uh, over at the, the college cafeteria. And so I tried to turn on the light beside the bed, but I found that I couldn't move. So I couldn't turn on the light. Then I heard footsteps coming across the room toward the bed, which was very disconcerting along with the paralysis. And I felt something, someone climb up on the bed. That is, I felt the mattress go down. And then I felt, I'll say, someone, something, because it didn't seem human. It was a... The, I couldn't see it because the room was totally dark, but my impression was of something evil, something awful. Uh, kneeling on my chest, I couldn't breathe. I thought I was dying. And to make clear the feeling about this, Lee, if I had, if lights had suddenly come on and I discovered it was just a murderer coming in to kill me, you know, and they they had a gun out and they were about to shoot me. I would have said, oh, thank goodness, because that would have been much better than the feeling that I had, this feeling of revulsion and evil of of this presence. It was just a horrific feeling. Um, so I struggled, as people always do, and I, when I finally moved, all of, the, all of the other features were gone. I whipped on the light, and the room was empty, 
I ran to the stairway. I ran downstairs. Uh, the guy I ran it from was sitting there watching TV. I said, did anybody come through here? He looked at me like I was crazy and uh, said, nope. And I went back up and I, I got dressed because I was not going back to bed then. Um, and started a many years long process of thinking about that and having no idea what it could be. I didn't want to tell anyone, and most of the people I've interviewed who've had this don't tell anybody because they don't want people to think they're crazy. And it sounds crazy. But uh, so as far as I knew, I was the only one who had ever had it. That's 1963. Fast forward to 1970 when I'm in Newfoundland, Canada doing field work for my dissertation. And I was studying uh, reports of supernatural experiences. I was studying belief systems, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I started out looking for what kind of beliefs did they have in Newfoundland. It's a very isolated, sort of old-fashioned place. I was told there'd be lots of interesting beliefs, traditions there. First thing I found was what they called the old hag, uh, which was their name for the the presence that comes into the room, and it was the kind, exactly the kind of paralysis attack experience that I had had. Everything. Door opening, footsteps, bed moving, pressure on the chest. And I thought, well, that's pretty darn interesting. <laughs> so I set out from that to study it, and I very quickly discovered it was common in Newfoundland. It was around 20% of the population, uh, according to my surveys, had had it at least once. The tradition was well known, uh, and I had learned in graduate school that this was how experiences and cultural traditions related, that if a culture provides a tradition about a kind of experience that supports the local belief, then people will sometimes have that experience or think they've had it or it will be claimed that somebody had it and that they're cultural products. But I immediately had the advantage of knowing that this is not a cultural product because it came out of a cultural void when it happened to me in 1963. I'd never heard of anything like it, and yet it was obviously exactly the same experience. So there began uh, what you called my, really, my career-long effort to understand not only sleep paralysis, but how, as it turns out, other kinds of spiritual experiences uh, also may, in fact, be not cultural products, and how their how their experiential features reported and confirmed across subjects raise really interesting questions. So there it is. That's my experience and, <laughs> and how it launched me. I'll just say one other thing. When I came back from Newfoundland in 1974 to take up my position at the medical school, I was pondering this question. Is there only one thing like this that is one complex, weird, supernatural-like experience that can occur across all cultures? Across, I didn't know all at that time. It turned out to be all cultures. But be widespread like this. Or are there more? And that was the year that Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, came out. And when I saw that, I thought, okay, there's more. And if there are two, (laughs) it's more than two. (laughs) And and in fact, it also, as Moody's book and the reaction to it, showed exactly what I found out about sleep paralysis in our culture, that the, the social stigma the psychiatric stigma really attached to experiences like this, the I don't want people to think I'm crazy, has in in our culture until very recently so 
thoroughly suppressed people's willingness to talk about this or report it or study it, uh, that it's been assumed that it was absent. You know, and I remember when Moody's book came out, a lot of people said, well, if, if, if this is so common, how come we never heard about it before? Well, because you always said that those people were crazy, so they didn't want to talk about it. That's why. Right. Anyway, well, so that, that, <laughs> that launched the, the larger inquiry. One of the amazing things about your career is that you have managed to combine uh, humanities, spirituality, and behavioral science in yeah. one package, and that um, Penn State was willing to put up with you <laughs> on uh, so many different levels. <laughs> well, you're right. Not only Penn State, but the National Institutes of Health and the Samueli Institute. I mean, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate but I can also tell you that there, and, and I say this partly because if there are any uh, other investigators out there, young faculty somewhere thinking, gee, I'd like to do that, but I know I'd get fired right away, there, there are important things about how to go about it. And one is, the question is not, are these real? For example, did a ghost or demon come into my room when I was in college and, and try to scare me to death? Uh, or was it an imaginary product of something we don't know what? That's a, that's a dead-end question at the moment. What I undertook to, to try to figure out was to what extent are the beliefs in these kinds of things rational and empirical? And it doesn't right. have to be true if it's rational and empirical, that is based in experience. Uh, and, you know, if we go back a few centuries, it was rational to believe the sun was going around the earth. And, and that was empirical, too. It sure looked like it was. Uh, it turned out to be a mistake, and it took a while to correct it. But rationality is not the same thing as what we might call philosophically an ontological claim about reality. But on the other hand, Lee, and I, I've always been very cautious until retirement going down this part of the, the track, is that if a claim for something to be real is rational and empirical and has multiple independent witnesses, that's a pretty good start on saying you have evidence for the claim. It doesn't prove the claim to be true. But it, it very often does, and this is true of near-death experiences too, prove that many of the efforts to dismiss the claim are false. That is, they're not well based on evidence. And well, so, it's it's not that it's not a true experience. It's just oh, what yeah. what is the true explanation for well, the that's, experience? That's very and, true. Very you know, correct. whereas one person might call it psychotic. I know you mentioned on a uh, I watched a YouTube, uh, really fascinating YouTube um, that you did on this topic, that Mormons um, and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Hare Krishna uh, take this um, to be something real and probably mm -hmm. demonic. So that's right. another explanation for the right. same thing. They do, and, and their cultural frame provides that interpretation for them, so they're, they're prepared to talk about it among each other at any rate. Mm -hmm. um, but the... I'm glad you brought up the psychotic issue because that's one of the things that makes me so committed to trying to take care of this tremendous confusion in our culture. This has been used to diagnose psychosis often. And near-death experiences have been. Near-death experiences were charted as delirium in hospitals all the time. Oh, yes. Until the mid-1970s. And it took until, until the 80s for people to 
slow down on attributing these to psychosis. But uh, you mentioned my funded study, which is a study of these, spirit, these kinds of spiritual experiences among combat veterans. In that study, and we can talk about this another time in detail, but I also studied, I, I surveyed clinical providers for combat veterans. And combat veterans have all these experiences much more frequently than other people do because of the 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 circumstances of combat, the sleeplessness, the trauma, the loss. Um, but their providers know nothing about it. Uh, right. And consistently, the providers who I interviewed and surveyed said that they would treat anyone who reported something like this and they would refer them to a psychiatrist because they considered this a serious psychiatric symptom. It is not a psychiatric symptom. It is, right. it, in the first place, it's way too common. Let's say something about because people might be wondering, especially those who've had this and didn't know anybody else had, because it always comes as a, a kind of a surprise, roughly 20% of the American population has had this waking up paralyzed, with a threatening presence in the room that they considered to be real, almost 20%. And that's based on a very large sample, almost 6,000 randomly selected subjects across the United States done by the Roper Polling Organization. So that, and, and all, of the other, all of the other statistics on this bear that up. Some populations, like combat veterans who lose a lot of sleep, naturally, uh, have a higher rate of prevalence. I found 40% uh, in my combat veteran sample had had at least one experience of the sleep paralysis visit. So anyway, it's really important. When you say, you know, it's a real experience, the experience of psychotic symptoms are also real experiences. But the question of, is it rational to accept a psychotic experience as really reflecting the aspect of reality that it makes a claim on? And the answer to that is, if it is genuinely psychotic, no, it's not. It's a product of thought disorder, and and you don't do the person a service by saying, yeah, I think you're right, uh, if they're talking to you about psychotic hallucinations. The, the question that I was involved with uh, on rationality is, do the people who say that this really happened to them. Are they making a strangely uninformed, perhaps poorly educated, uh, or thoughtless assertion? And I'd like to give you, can I give you one example here? Sure. Okay, it's a case from um, my favorite group of people who I studied with this when I came back and took up my position at the medical school, and that's my medical students. Uh, because my medical students had this a little more frequently than others because medical students tend to be sleep-deprived. And when we, we should be sure to give people some understanding of the mechanism behind the paralysis um, and how that relates to the amount of sleep you've had. But at any rate, here, this is a medical student. I knew him well, uh, and he came to me because he had heard about my research, and he said he wanted to tell me, what had happened to him the previous year. So this was he was a first-year student at the medical school. When he was finishing college, he was at college. He describes having taken a nap back in the dorm, and then I'm, uh, now I'm quoting from the transcript. He said, what woke me up was the door slamming. I thought, must be my roommate. I was lying on my back, kind of looking up. Door slammed. I had my eyes open. I was awake. 
Everything was light in the room, but my roommate wasn't there. Next thing I knew, I couldn't move. I kind of like gazed over toward the door. There was no one there. But the next thing I knew from one area of the room, this grayish, brownish, murky presence was there. And it swept down over the bed, and I was terrified. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I felt it pressing down all over me. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. And the whole thing was that you know, I could hear the stereo in the room next to me. I was wide awake, and I couldn't move. I was helpless, and I was I was really scared. And this murky presence, this thing was evil. This was evil. You know, this is weird. You must think I'm a nut, but this thing was there. I felt a pressure on me like it was enveloping me. It was very, very strange. I struggled. I struggled to move, and eventually I moved my arm, and the whole thing just went away, the presence, everything. But everything else remained the same, the same stuff going on. Now, that is a highly educated uh, medical student who you know, is, is not psychotic, You're but right. he not only had this experience, which he had never heard of, he had no tradition about it, but he was convinced as he talked to me that whatever the hell that was, it really happened to him and it was something in the room. One of now the, that's, well, I'm glad. That's, uh, it's uh, a rational, and, and he has a rational basis, he has a better rational basis for this after mm-hmm. he finds out about other people's experiences, even than he does at the beginning. Because the more you hear other people describing the same thing, the more convinced you become that, okay, I'm not imagining it. I'm glad you mentioned that example because um, one of the things that crossed my mind as I was watching the uh, your YouTube presentation was that there's a strong parallel to people who think they've had uh, encounters with aliens, oh, yeah. with greys. And this one in particular, that grey presence... Yeah. Sounds something like that. Have you have you run into that a lot? Uh, more than I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> I and I attended some of those conferences because I was asked to by people who said they had been uh, had been abducted. And uh, let me start by saying the whole UFO phenomenon thing is weird. It, it, there, there's a lot of anomalous, unexplained stuff there. I'm not an expert on it. And so I don't want to make any strong assertion about what's, you know, what's going on. However, I can tell you this, that most, really everyone I ever spoke to who had sleep paralysis that they thought was abduction remembered the abduction after being hypnotically regressed. The people who called me and wrote to me and said, please come to the conference because they actually said, several of them said, the thing I saw on the cover of your book that's what happened to me, and that was my only recollection before I was hypnotically regressed. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that if a person who's had sleep paralysis is interviewed about whether that might have been an abduction by uh, an enthusiastic investigator, they're going to get an abduction out of it. Uh, I don't think that means anything. I don't, I'm not saying there is or is not any such thing as abduction, or anything like that, but this is a massive confusion between topics. And in fact, Dave Jacobs, who was one of the early uh, abduction investigators, told me that based on his hypnotic regression interviews, everybody he ever met who had had sleep paralysis, a near-death experience, a visit from a deceased loved one, they had all been abducted. I don't believe it. No. Do you do you suppose um, 
that all uh, sleep paralysis experiences are have this evil connotation? Has there been a, such a thing as a good uh, sleep paralysis experience? That's a complicated question. Uh, the sensation of evil is found all over the world. That is, there are no cultures where this is considered to be a nice thing. Most cultures have lots of lots of traditions about nice spiritual visits, but they don't consider this to be nice generally. Although some of them have traditions that say that it is a visit from a loved one who has not been properly treated. So, for example, Southeast Asian cultures, some of them say that this is a person who did not get proper burial when they died, and they're they're bothered by it. They they're trying to make you do something about it. So there are a lot of different ways of looking at it, but it's, it is very rare to get what anyone would call a positive experience out of this. I won't say that it never happens, but one of the complexities is that there's a difference between being paralyzed and not trying to move. And in meditative experiences that become visionary, it's often the case that if people want the, the experience to continue, they have to not move. And many people have discovered this in the process of having, you know, doing meditation. Then you and I are in a quandary because we can't tell whether they were paralyzed or not. Um, but let's say a little more about the paralysis because before we're finished, I want to make sure that people know a little bit about the neurophysiology of this. And, and it is, is that okay? We do this sure. Here? Yeah, okay. So sleep, the reason we call it sleep paralysis uh, during dreaming sleep, which most people might know as REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which is the stage of sleep when people have dreams. When you enter REM sleep, there's a brain mechanism that produces a loss of muscle tone. In fact, in the sleep lab, you can tell when people enter REM just by having them hooked up to uh, an electromyograph machine that measures muscle tone. Muscle tone goes, they're in REM. Why does the muscle tone go? It's a limp paralysis that prevents people from acting out the behaviors in their dream. If it were not for that paralysis, every time you started to dream, you would wake yourself up. So what happens in sleep paralysis is that mechanism comes on. It intrudes, we could say, into waking consciousness. And in sleep paralysis, people do have normally EGs, uh, they many many of them uh, most in my samples that I've interviewed uh, have their eyes open. The only thing they can move is their eyes. They see the real environment along with whatever else may have intruded into the environment if it's visible, not always visible. Okay, so what you've got there is a an altered state of consciousness composed of uh, one mechanism of dreaming sleep being present at the same time that you're wide awake. Now, that's the explanation of the paralysis. There, I've seen efforts, but none of them are any good, to explain why this complex series of perceptions takes place during that paralysis. Uh, you know, if, if what you had was a conviction that you were really awake in your room and all kinds of dream stuff happened there, we would just say, ah, dreaming while awake. But... Even if, even if you're just talking about nightmares, about bad dreams, if you interview 100 people about bad dreams, you get at least 50 different kinds of bad dreams. You don't get the same dream over and over. And there's nothing in, contrary to what some people have tried to claim, there's nothing in the actual features, the physical features 
of the experience that would account for bringing those those details in. You might yes. say, well, people think it's evil because it's bad to be paralyzed. Well, that certainly explains why it's scary. Uh, but how about the footsteps? You know, the footsteps are the most common thing that people hear, and they're not all. There are all kinds of footsteps that are heard, but the most common kind are shuffling footsteps. I heard shuffling footsteps. Many of my medical students heard shuffling footsteps. I have a great medieval Swedish account that says it sounded like the Mara, which is what they called it, was coming across the floor, dragging a heavy cloth sack over the wood floor. Well, that's what what I heard. uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, David, we're out of time for today, but fortunately... you and I talked, and you're going to be able to come back next not next Monday to continue this conversation. Yeah. Great. Uh, maybe can we, we add can... just one thing, Lee? I want to make sure we don't leave this out. This okay. cannot harm you, and it is not a symptom of a disorder. It's scary, uh-huh. but you're not alone, and it's not. It cannot hurt you. That's that's terrific. Oh, well, I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Hufford, for sharing his story with us today. I'm looking forward to our discussion of his research into veterans' NDEs on next Monday's show. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS and our upcoming conference in Seattle, check out that website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, For more NDE Radio, this is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.